Hey everyone, this is Marcel. And this is Isabel, and you are now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. We're back from a brief hiatus, but we're super excited for the guests that we have coming up um, on the podcast. For any new listeners, uh, the Top Rank Podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging their fields and, of course, the world around them. Today, we're extremely honored to be joined by writer and art critic Jessica Lin. And Jess, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Jess. I am co-founder and co-editor of Arts.Black, a journal of art criticism that publishes Black critics. And I'm also a budding community gardener. Wow. That's so lovely. I mean, I would love to. My, my green thumb is freaking dismal. So I'm honored I would love to, to be breaking that. this news. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is the first time I'm saying it on the record. That's amazing. I, would, I think it would be great to start by zooming a bit on Artstock Black mm-hmm. and why you founded it and what the goals are of, of the platform. For sure. Um, so I founded Artstock Black in 2014 with my dear friend and colleague Taylor Aldridge, who lives in Detroit. And for years before that, friends of friends had been saying, you and Taylor need to meet. You guys are like the same person. Um, You're both trying to figure out what it means to be young black women in the art world. So we did finally meet and it was an instant connection and kind of a intellectual partnership that we both recognized was going to kind of lead to something. But I don't think in the beginning of that friendship we knew that Arts That Black was going to be the outcome. And so as our conversations kind of continued, and as we realized that we were both also equally interested in like writing and cultural production, Arts That Black as an idea began to take shape. Um, Taylor, I still remember this, had recently purchased the dot .black domain and was very much like, I have this idea. We know that there are conversations happening about kind of like inclusion, equity, and diversity in the field. But it seems like critics are consistently left out of that, right? No one is implicating the the editorial world as being complicit in kind of a certain type of like erasure and consistent visibility, invisibility. Um, and she's like, I think we have the power to shape some new conversations about criticism. Um, and so Arts That Black really came out of that conversation. And... Our central question, which I think has evolved and it's more sophisticated now, but that initial origin point was really to kind of identify where the young Black art critics were. Um, And we knew that they were all around us and they were our friends and they were our colleagues and they were people we were reading, but they weren't necessarily getting published on the big, quote unquote, like mainstream massheads. And so Arts.Black for us became an editorial container to publish those folks, to kind of celebrate their work, um, to challenge our own selves as writers, and to also think differently about what a pipeline could look like into some of the more established publications. Um, And this year is our five-year anniversary, so it feels like we're doing something right. Wow, congratulations. That's a long time. Half a decade. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, this is a good segue to sort of the backbone of Art Stop Black, and I guess of of your career and also mine, actually, which is art criticism mm-hmm. or or cultural criticism more generally. And one thing that I think we'd like to know that sometimes is not asked because it's sort of like taken for granted is 
sort of how you decided to be a critic and what that means to you? Like, what what brought you kind of into touch or made you interested in having a critical perspective towards art? And yeah. if if it makes sense, also, like, maybe who are some influences that yeah. inspired you to want to take this role? This yeah. Role? I love this question because I get to always talk about a writer and professor who I love, um, Carly Moore, who was one of my first writing professors in school. Um, I went to NYU and I thought as an undergrad that I was going to be majoring in journalism, but I hated journalism as like a discipline of study. No shade to all the journalists out there. (laughs) Your work is really important. But in like a curriculum setting, it was killing me. It was so boring. Um, And so in Carly's classes, I really came to think about writing in the way that um, felt more aligned with whatever creative writing looks like in the academic setting. Um, We were thinking very seriously about poetry as criticism. Um, We were thinking about the essay as kind of like this malleable entity. And I was also reading a lot of new authors that I hadn't read before, Wayne Kostenbaum, Susan Sontag, Bell Hooks. Um, And so I think Carly's kind of introduction to the idea of writing as craft in a way that can be both rigorous but experimental in form was the like, the tipping point for me to start thinking about my own self as a writer who could take that up. And through her, I came to Bell Hooks' Art on My Mind, which I think is the seminal text for me as like a young person that really introduced the idea of a Black woman critic um, in the world. That series of essays feels extremely seminal, even though there are moments now that I go back and read it, and I'm like, oh, I, I would disagree here. Like, I would, you know, like, it's not the 90s anymore. Some of our language has changed, and now we talk about things. Um, but it was really that moment, I think, as a student that really kind of opened up a different type of world to me and it was really nice to have that outside of I think a formal journalistic course of study um, because what it did was invite I think other types of authors into my thinking about what criticism could be and what it could do. Hmm. Oh, that's a great answer. I, f- I feel like I'm only now sort of in the past like couple of years becoming more comfortable writing creatively when I'm mm. writing criticism like I feel like I have a very academic writing style that I just kept from school and I and it's really hard for me to bring a more spontaneous or personal voice mm-hmm. so so I should probably like take uh, take some notes on some of this reading because I could definitely use it I mean I'm inspired a lot by like as an editor reading people's writing who write in a more creative way mm-hmm. and then I'm like whoa I could actually <laughs> emulate this a little bit in my own writing but I'm always curious like I want to actually take us back in time Mm -hmm. because I think that who we are as children and those early formative moments are so important I want to know from you like what is your like what are your earliest memories with experiencing art and having it Mm -hmm. like move you in a way that has led you to where you are now yeah you know it's it's wild because I was not the kid who had like the daily journal I wasn't like writing stories as a seven-year-old you know like I feel like writers have those like I wrote my first novel as a 10-year-old <laughs> I, I didn't I wasn't doing that I was reading a lot yeah um and I was kind of like obsessing over family photographs but in terms of like formal institutional experiences they were few and far between um I'm from the Hampton Roads area in coastal Virginia and that area is home to a historically black college and university called Hampton University. And 
Issues Museum is one of the oldest black museums in the country. And so that is a place that I kind of knew early on as a kid. But outside of that setting, I really was not the person in the family, in a family that was going to the museums daily, um, which is to say that I think my people really appreciated creativity, but it came up in these more vernacular ways, right? Like the family photograph or kind of um, like the Saturday afternoon, like dance competition with all the cousins. You know what I mean? Um, I even think I took, I was taking like a ballet course for a few years as a kid and I hated it and I was like, get me out of this. <laughs> but there was still like a collective interest in like what that could look like. It just wasn't necessarily formally organized or structured around, you know, around me. Um, and so to be, to come to New York as a teenager for school and kind of be thrust in the middle of a big cultural conversation was overwhelming in a sense but it was kind of like the right type of momentum. You know, when you are, you didn't realize that you were missing a thing and you find it and you're like, oh, this was the impulse that I've been feeling. I just didn't have a language for it. Um, I think that that, it was a kind of a really lovely kind of a, something to arrive into. Um, but I definitely was not the kid going to the museums. You know, like my dad um, was a history teacher. So we were going to like old battlefields in the area and we were like, going to like the historic parks and things like that. Um, but nothing that looked like what I encounter on a day-to-day -day basis now. And I think that's okay. You know, um, I never felt deficient or I never felt like I was lacking for anything as a kid. It just didn't look like what my life looks like now, you know? For yeah. Sure. I mean, I feel like the fact that you are from the South is a big part of your bio mm -hmm. and like, and your points of view in some of your work. Um, and I'm curious for maybe you to talk a little bit more about yeah. that and like, how does it affect not only your worldview, which I guess is, I mean, it's obvious, but it would be interesting to hear like some, some details, but also how does it affect your relationship to art? Mm, yeah. Well, I think that the South is a very complicated place. Um, I really loved growing up in a coastal area. Um, in fact, I think the area that I'm from most recently kind of was in a national conversation with regard to 1619 um, because that is Point Comfort. And so it was a very kind of generative place to have a childhood, I think. Um, it's a beach town, you know, so in a lot of ways, the South that I know, it looks very differently than someone who grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, or kind of Greenville, South Carolina, right? Geographically and otherwise. Um, and I think what it has meant now to come back to the South, what, 12, 13 years later, um, has meant that I'm doing a lot of listening again. Um, because in like, you know, in all honesty and like in real frankness, the kind of ways in which I was shaped as an adult were also deeply informed by New York City and Brooklyn in particular. Um, and so I had to and have to kind of recalibrate a bit, um, not because I felt like I left the South as an escape, but because when you are away from a place for so long, when you come back to it, you move differently, like how you think about things is different. And my adult self was very much shaped by New York sensibility. Um, and so in my writing, what I think I've been trying to do is figure out how to write back towards home. Um, and I think what that looks like now is 
not necessarily an interest in being kind of the critic who feels like everything has to be didactically about the American South. But I think how it's showing up is in a certain type of sensibility. Um, I think I'm very interested in the quiet conversations about 21st century kind of Black Southern aesthetic. Um, And I think that for me, I know that that work will probably be something that I spend the next few years attending to. Um, And it doesn't mean that I will see myself living there forever again. Um, in fact, I, I don't know that when I left uh, Virginia for the first time for school that I thought I was going to come back so suddenly. Um, but it does feel good to be back there now. And I think in the context of kind of, and I'm sure this will come up later, but kind of specific writing that I'm doing, it can only take place there. You know, like I think sometimes like we as writers and thinkers and scholars, we're tending to like macro level projects, but then we find like a like singular question that feels like you have to address it. One, like in real time as it comes up, but you also have to address it in a way that feels very specific and concrete. And so I think my return to the South was emotional, but it was also in response to like some real work that I feel like I have to get done like right now at this point in my life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it means thinking about the US South America means paying attention to kind of like diaspora politics. It means paying attention to kind of like land in different ways and how we talk about sacredness of land. Um, it means paying real attention to the fact that the South is not this kind of static historical place, that it is contemporary in a, ways that I don't actually think a lot of folks allow it to be. Um, and I don't know that I am alone in that impulse. I think that there are other writers, publications who are trying to be um, really thoughtful about that too. And I hope that however long I'm back home, I can kind of contribute in ways that feel honest and good and not necessarily like kind of like repeat, you know, patterns um, or usurp something that's already in motion Mm. because I've come back, you know? Yeah, it's super fascinating to hear you talk about how, like, the focus of your work has shifted and evolved, obviously, as anyone does. Um, And I guess that leads you to be super curious to wonder, like, what do you find yourself, like, drawn to writing about? Mm -hmm. And who do you see yourself writing for? Um, and perhaps how's that, how's that changed? I mean, you've already started talking about it, but yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. I was just talking with a friend earlier that I've been writing a lot of bad essays about love, which you I feel like when you, and you guys know this, like the personal essay in the context of like academic writing or maybe more formal criticism, there's not always room for the eye. Right. <laughs> and... I recognize the ways in which my, like, criticism has tried to, like, push that a little bit. But personal essay territory is terrifying for me. Um, And yet, somehow, I can't stop writing about, like, love and heartbreak right now. I mean, some of it has to do with, like, where I am in my life. Um, But I never thought it would be, like, I never thought I would kind of, like, be excited to share this writing with the world, even as it, like, scares the shit out of me. Um, So right now, I've been researching these two um, queer Black Southern elders who had a relationship throughout 
kind of the better part of the 20th century. And I've been using them as a way to think through my own relationship to other women I've cared for in a variety of forms, heartbreaks, um, kind of different types of intimacies, which in some ways has some things to do with art, but in a lot of ways it doesn't. Mm. And I feel like I've kind of been unveiling myself in a sense, which is just scary. It's so scary to be so vulnerable in this way. Um, but it also feels good to go to a museum, for example, and not be on assignment. It's right. just be like, so I'm not writing about this right now. I yeah. can just look at it, you know? Um, and I think that I, or I guess I should say that it's a pleasurable feeling because, I don't know, I want to be a writer who can write well about multiple types of things. Um, and I feel really good about who I am as a critic and now... I'm like, well, who am I as someone who's going to be writing about X topic? Or, you know, I was tweeting earlier today, like, I want to start travel writing. You know, like, I feel like I want, I want first and foremost, to be responsible to the craft of writing and to, like, figure out how to do it in ways that have nothing to do with how I make my living. So, you know, I have some sappy essays right now, but they feel nice, you know? Um, and I feel like I'm going to follow that thread and see where it leads. Maybe somewhere good. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, I think I think every writer is... It's good to take a break from, like, your primary mode and kind of, like, let your mind wander in other creative ways um, and see what happens. Totally. That's super brave to release those parts it's of your... Yeah, that's... Yeah, oh, that's yeah, where that... Because it, it's also really easy happens. to get... I mean, we talk about this. Like, you get pigeonholed because we mm -hmm. all are, like, a product, you know? It's like yep. You have to brand yourself yeah, with yep. being like, I do this. Yep. Yep. And then the second, I mean, in a way, it's good to branch out early to be like, actually, I'm I'm a renaissance woman. Mm -hmm. I do all these different things. But I definitely also haven't done too much of that, but, but would like to. But So then did you move back to Virginia with the intention of doing this project there? Or did it come up after you were there? Yeah, and how did you meet these elders? Like, who are these women? Right. So they're, no, they're, they're dead. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was like, how did you spiritually, <laughs> spiritually yeah. encounter them? So um, I have been researching the life of Amaza Lee Meredith, who was an architect born in rural part of Virginia um, in the late 19th century. And I came to her work through another architect who teaches at Columbia right now, Mario Gooden, who has an essay about her in his book, uh, Dark Space. And so I'm reading this book and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's great. And then I realized like this woman was from Virginia and she was born in like 1895 and she died in 1984 and she was an artist. She also like studied in New York for a period of time. She was an architect. She was this queer woman. She founded the art department at Virginia State University. And mm -hmm. I was like, why have I never heard about her? Who is she? You know, and I think maybe this is connected to the earlier question you asked about kind of what it's been like to go back home. But I think so much of what I've also been interested in in this return is thinking about four, four fear figures, you know, like people that we feel compelled to or drawn to because we have some sort of connection to them, even if we don't exactly know what it is. Um, and so I, I was like led to her work and I felt really excited about finding this like other Virginian woman who is kind of working in a way that looks close to the way I work now, who's thinking about queerness even if she didn't name it as such. And I was like, oh my God, this is fascinating. But 
I didn't know that it was gonna be anything like substantial. I was like, well, you know, like I'm not in school anymore. I'm not really sure like how a research project could take shape, like who's gonna pay for it? Like how am I gonna support, you know, visits to the archive? So I just kind of like left her in the back of my mind and went about my business. Um, and when I had made the decision to come home in October of 2019, I think that that was a point where I was like, if I'm gonna be home, I want to do something. I, I want this time to feel important to me in some way. And it felt really like opportune to be like, let me just spend some more time with this woman um, and her partner, Dr. Agna Coulson, who was equally amazing and fascinating and kind of think about kind of the legacies of black Southern queer women in a way that I think is very important to me. Um, and they're, like I said, you know, like this work is not necessarily new, but for me, it felt like, what would it mean for a critic to kind of come into this kind of formal research? Um, and what would it mean to challenge myself to write in a different way to kind of take up someone's archive posthumously? I'm like, what the hell? I don't even know how to, like what I'm really doing. I'm just kind of making these visits to their papers, um, and working with the archivists and asking questions. But I feel like it's the right, I feel like there's some momentum there. Um, so this is a long way of saying no. I hadn't originally <laughs> thought that this was going to be the project. Wow. And I'm glad that it's less of like a historical biography of this person and more of kind of like, there are essays about love and queerness and Southern identity. Um, because I think that that is something that's like really pressing to me right now. And, you know, I have a lot of questions about like the ethics of this work and like, carefully attending to someone's archives and all those other things that come with it and I'm sure I'll get to those questions and find the answers to them um but yeah it's it's kind of it kind of is just like intuitively like unfolded um and I feel like that's probably the best way to approach something like this rather than like coming in with like the formal this is what I want to do and this is how it's going to work and if it doesn't work this way it doesn't matter because mm. I don't know like you never really know when you come to like a project of this magnitude. You're just like, I have these questions, but the research takes you elsewhere, you know, and you just got to follow it. Otherwise, it feels forced. And people, when they read your work, they can feel that too, you know? For mm, sure. But I feel, I feel like you just answered your own question about the ethics in a way. Because it's like, <laughs> it's like the intent is everything. And, yeah. and if your intent is to like, I'm going to get this out of it and I'm, I've already decided what I'm getting out and I'm going to extract that for whatever ends, like that's where I think you run into problems. But yeah. if you're open-minded and approaching it in a way which is, like, so purely, like, humanistic, I feel like you kind of can't go wrong if that is what's guiding you. For sure. Yeah. I mean, how have, what's your, your, what's been your experiences as, like, an independent researcher, like, in the archives? Is that something that, <laughs> it's like, nerd question. Yeah. <laughs> but, Isabel and I, that's, like, part of, like, hearing you talk about your friendship with, with Taylor and how mm -hmm. that started is similar to how Isabel and I, like, basically mm -hmm. do everything that we do together. Mm -hmm. It's just, like, finding, you know, your intellectual, like, partner and just, like, you know, obviously having privileges and connections to certain institutions to know like how to navigate but for most most part like self-funding self-doing and so like is that is that challenging for you working on this yeah. project now or like how yeah what's that experience been like yeah no the intellectual partnership and like like relationship is so real you know like I think Taylor is an important soundboard for me um, and that having that person to ask questions to someone who can like hold you accountable, I think is invaluable, you know. Um, I also think that Artstop Black 
we received like a major um, grant from the Ford Foundation in 2018, and that Snap. really changed the game for both of us. Um, it allowed me to leave New York, you know, it allowed me to travel for a bit. Um, and it really felt like it took some of the pressure off of, well, how am I going to read and write? Um, because, you know, we go to grad school as a kind of framework and scaffolding to do some of those things. And when you're working either outside or beyond the academy, the real question is like the question of the resource. Like, where yeah. is it going to come from? During question, who's paying for this? Who's paying for it? Unless you have, like, a sponsor or something like that, you're like, well, I guess I'm paying for We're it. We're seeking sponsors. <laughs> Any listeners? Please. R- really. We, we are. <laughs> um, Gladly. Um, and so, yeah, I think that grant really opened up. A, it made me be able to think about what my life could look like in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um because it takes the shuts off momentarily, some of the financial pressures that would exist if I just kind of left a position without any sort of security. Um, and so I want to be I want to be super transparent about that because I can imagine my life looking very differently in my relationship to this new writing that I'm doing looking very differently if that grant had not happened to us. Um, I think beyond that. It's this research project has also required me to be disciplined in different ways. Like I am setting up monthly appointments at the archive. <laughs> like I'm doing like my expenses differently. Like just practical things that I wasn't thinking about when I was like writing on the beat and also working a full time job. I'm kind of like blocking out one or two days a week for like only writing, you know. Um, and it's forced me to figure out a routine that best not only like suits myself but also suits the project which I don't think I had thought about seriously at all either I was just like oh here's this fascinating person whose life I'm interested in let me go to their archive and start looking through their papers but now I'm like oh yes I have to like catalog the images I take I have to make sure that my Dropbox has enough storage for them you know like these little things um that logistically really help the the largeness of it all feel a little easier to navigate um I just don't, I don't know that I was actively thinking about those small things um, that can really transform, like, your ability to, like, engage with someone's life, like, life left through papers. Wow. Yeah. You know, like. And I feel like knowledge production is so, is so complicated because it's, like, there's the emotive, like, emotional, subjective part, and then there's the logistical part of actually, you know, the organizational part, which is obviously maybe a little less fun, but just as important what you're saying about your experience like discovering her is actually reminding me of our last episode with this incredible archivist and writer Maria Cotera who runs this project that you would actually probably find interesting too called um, the Chicana Feminist Archive I believe that it's called it's something very similar to that and if you google her name and Chicana Feminism you'll definitely find it but one thing that she so what she does is that she visits these older women who were part of the Chicano feminist movement and she listens to them talk about their entire life and, and basically in a couple days that, that she spends with them records everything she can and takes mm-hmm. pictures of all their stuff mm-hmm. like just does the most but what you reminded me of is that she brings sort of interns students with her on her trips and she said that one thing that 
consistently happens is that the girls who she brings with her are when they discover all these women who were doing this work who they never knew about they're just angry mm. because there's all this all these people and like all these references that totally validate their their worldviews and like their pain that they just never knew about and like how upsetting that is mm. and so I feel like even for the sake of like you are so lucky to have discovered this person who you have all this in common with and you putting forward information into the world for like other women in the future to also know about her and you mm-hmm. is like more powerful than we think. Oh, so, thanks for saying that. And you Thank should definitely you. look her up. I will. I will. She was really inspiring to us also because yeah. she just, I mean, as you're saying, it's like sometimes you're just putting in the work and you're like, wait, like, am I in like an echo chamber? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. like Marcel, you for me are like validate so much. Uh, so many of my thoughts and desires and like we're really lucky to have like each of us yeah. a partner who does that but yay for archiving yeah we <laughs> love it we love to see it so, so um okay sorry for derailing um back to back to schedule we also wanted to ask you um well a Maybe, I mean, you mentioned this a little bit in terms of who you were reading in school, but mm. also, like, who are some of your favorite writers in general, like, even yeah, right yeah. now? And then also, what's something that you've written lately that, that you felt really good about? This is a great question. So, obviously, it's the birth month of Queen Mother Toni Morrison, so I feel like yeah. I have to start with her, um, who I think her work is it's unparalleled, really. Um, but I also really love women like June Jordan and Tony Kate Bambara. Um, I have a list actually. I should oh my gosh! Yes, the four mothers. Yes, uh, Maxine Hong Kingston. I feel like in high school I read Wole Soinka for the first time, the Nigerian poet and author, and that really changed my world. Um. I am feel like I'm reading always and coming back to like Parley Marshall, uh, Maurice Conde. Um, I'm really trying to like make my way through some slowly translated texts of this Cuban poet, uh, Nancy Morahone, who is like fantastic and phenomenal. Um, I'm in like an elder phase right now. I think that's what the point of this is. Like I'm just like there, um, and I think contemporary writers um I love the food critic Mayuk Sin who recently won a James Beard award in 2017 2018 um he's just been like fantastic at thinking through speaking of archives like queer food writers queer chefs women of color chefs chefs and kind of like bringing their stories to the fore in ways that have been um super profound and important to me um who else I feel like always I'm reading two Taylors Taylor Aldridge my RSI black partner but Taylor Montague who is a filmmaker film curator film critic um there is a poet Patero Kalule who published a book um of a collection of poetry entitled Kalimba which I read about a month ago and I thought that was really transformative um there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people. I recently um, finished and wrote about Sarah Broom's The Yellow House, which was her memoir of growing up in New Orleans East. Oh, yeah. And that I've book. about this book. So good. Okay. So, so good. Um, I'm trying to be really good about reading folks who 
one whose work looks like the work that I want to put in the world or whose work has nothing to do like conceptually with what I do but I just feel like they're like darn good at making sentences you know <laughs> yeah. um, like oh you really know how to make this thing read like a song um so like that there there are a lot of others but I feel like those are the people that I've been like thinking about consistently recently um and in terms of a piece that is that I've written that I'm excited about well there's a piece that's coming out that is about love and kind of like heartbreak um and I hope it's okay for me to say it because it's definitely coming out um but it's coming out for long reads and it's a part of a series commissioned by another writer who I enjoy Daniel A. Jackson called The Hive and it's a piece um that thinks about my relationship to Billie Holiday's I'll Be Seeing You um and how that song kind of helped me navigate a long distance relationship um so it's not out yet I hope that I can like that can be an answer because it'll be there soon (laughs) dropping soon the new hot fire (laughs) (laughs) but I actually am really excited about it because it's just a thing that I've never done before and I'm I feel really proud of it Um, I'm also terrified but I'm like this was a good thing and I'm happy that like I pushed myself in this way Um, I'm really thankful to Danielle for like inviting me and giving me an opportunity I can't wait to read that. Yeah, same. That's always, that's when you know you're doing something right. It's just like a little bit yeah. scary. And the fact that you have that like verb to push yourself to continue to grow and expand and develop as a person, as a writer, I think that's really yeah. aspirational and amazing. Um, I'm, I'm curious about, again, maybe we're, it's like going back to the beginning in a sense, but this, this idea of like the art critic and art criticism as a vocation, as a thing. I would love to learn more about, like, your relationship to it. Mm. Because in my mind, it seems like when you hear art critic, it can be, like, quite, like, intimidating or, like, esoteric, like a closed world. So I'm curious to hear, like, what your relationship is to that field mm. and, like, how, what you, what you appreciate it, what you like about it, and maybe what are things that you would like to see changed? Oh, this is a real question. Oh, my God. So, first of all, I don't think anyone grows up and is like, I'm going to be an art critic. (laughs) Never. And if you are that person, I can't relate, fam. (laughs) I just don't think that that happens. You know, like, I really thought I was going to be, like, a journalist of some kind. Mm. But the recession happened and the bottom fell out of everything. And the writers of the 90s that I loved, people like Joan Morgan, for example, those jobs just, like, did not exist anymore. And so while I was kind of really falling in love with the idea of being a writer, I was also very much aware that, like, it was going to look completely different for a generation of people um, coming into this in the, like, mid-aughts, I guess, 2007, 2008, and so I didn't necessarily fall into art criticism, but I knew, or I guess I should say, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to be able to do it full time. Um, When Arts at Black started, I was working as an art administrator at an organization in Brooklyn, and I enjoyed it. You know, it put me in proximity to artists. As someone who didn't study art history, it forced me to have different conversations with them and kind of get a particular set of knowledge like in real time on the ground. 
But I did. I was like, there's no way I can do this full time. You're like, what? Like who? Unless you are getting hired by the New York Times as a 21, 22 year old kid. I'm like, oh, this will be cute for a few years. And then I'll have to like find a real job. And I think as not only as Artstop Black received, continued to receive attention, but as I realized that like, no, I'm actually pretty good at what I do. And maybe there's a way to think about how writing can fit alongside other things for me, like teaching, for example. I felt really excited about the idea um, of pursuing it full time. And again, like I was so young and, you know, feeling like, okay, maybe it won't be full time right now in this moment, but there could be another type of it could be possible. Uh, And that was like, you know, the haze of it all. Now, I think I'm very, very realistic about the fact that very few writers can make a living doing what they do, Um, which isn't to say that it's not important, but I think the Jessica in her 30s just knows that, like, the game is really hard, Um, and sometimes it's not an indication of talent. It's just the jobs are not there always. Um, And I think for folks invested in art criticism... You know, it means that you make particular decisions about who you write about and why you write about them. Um, I think there are moments of real frustration that I have, you know. Um, And in New York, when I was still living here in particular, I got to a point where I was feeling bored with my own voice. Like I was writing to keep up with a machine that I was increasingly feeling distant from, especially the older I got. Now that I've had some time away and I'm living in a different place, I think I've been refreshed, so to speak. Um, And I also think that I've learned that it's okay to like take breaks and pauses like we were talking about earlier and like write about different things or do something completely different. (laughs) You know, like I've found gardening, which is a skill and it's also really hard and it's equally rewarding to me. Um, And so I think I want to be mindful of like, Making sure that when I feel low or if I'm not feeling good about art criticism as an industry, like, I don't pretend that I'm feeling good about it, you know, because it's hard. Um, I also think that there, in real ways, I've been super privileged and, like, really blessed and fortunate to have had certain opportunities um, that put me in a position to receive a Ford Foundation grant, for example, Um, but I don't think it's all, it's not like, it's not all shits and giggles, you know? Um, and I think most writers who are freelancing full time would probably say the same thing. It's hard. Um, even when you love the process of writing, like it is still a hard thing to do and to kind of make a living at. Um, and I'm like, I I get that now. You know, the older me is like, hmm, yeah, those <laughs> like the beat, like the the magazine, the study magazine job, the newspaper job. Like, they're there, but they're hard to get sometimes. And I think the questions that I'm asking myself now are, like, what does it mean to be a part of a community of writers who maybe we're writing about art and cultural production, but maybe, like, our day-to-day looks differently. Like, maybe we are farming. Maybe we are doing other things and still kind of, like, sharing our work with the world. But, like, maybe the industry around it looks differently. For sure. Like, creating a new model, like, out of necessity, but also out as a way to kind of feed yourself and yeah. sus- in, in, all, in all the ways and sustain yeah. yourself because I can imagine like I mean yeah writing writing is it can be torture you so to, <laughs> to, yeah. to have those yeah 
And I feel like no matter, even if you get a great rate, scare quotes, as a writer, the amount of, like, the amount of energy, emotion, time, fraught, just ideation that goes mm. into writing, like, a really good article, you're still being, like, so vastly underpaid for, like, the, the work, yeah. the actual work. Like, yeah. So, in a way, it's, like, it almost, like, can't really be quantified, like, what it's yeah. worth to, yeah. like, create ideas about, especially if you're a cultural critic, like, yeah. so, in yeah, like, I feel, I feel like even if you, pers- even if you were hired by, like, the best magazines in the world to pay the most, like, you're still, like, what you're really creating for them is, like, invaluable. Yeah, yeah. So. And it matters. I do yeah. think criticism matters. I think it's important. I think it really helps shape the way we think about so much of visual culture around us you know like I don't think it's insignificant I think the hard part is like holding on to that truth and also watching kind of like a media business model that really can't necessarily sustain a lot of the good work that we want to see in the world right now like there there has to be some other model um I don't know what it is right now, but I know yeah. that there has to be some sort of alternative, um, or at least I hope that there can be some sort of alternative to, um, to like take some shape. You know. Do you think that your gardening has like shaped your writing practice? Yeah, tell us about the gardening. Well, I just started. Okay, so <laughs> I really I have know. to give a shout out to my friend Brian, who's a musician and also from. Um, 757 as we call it and our friend Courtney Deal and Brian uh, was home maybe like a month ago a month ago I got a text from him and he's like you know what I want to do I want to like be a part of a garden and I'm like oh yeah that's great and then in the same like I'm typing oh yeah that's great and he drops the link to this community garden program and I'm like what you already found this thing he's like oh yeah like I'm signing us up and I was like cool done and done And I had already been kind of like interested in beekeeping. So I was like, okay, we're going to get to the garden and I'm going to ask them if I can get some hives. So it just kind of seamlessly flowed together. So we have a plot, plot C5 um, at the Buckrow Beach Community Garden. And we have not done a thing yet, (laughs) but we are going to start weeding out our plot. We got to figure out what we want to grow and we're going to like see this thing through. I'm also secretly hoping that Khalees will accept me as her intern because, you know, she's farming and gardening right now, too. So I'm really like, let me get my skills up so that when Khalees is ready to take on an apprenticeship, I can be ready. Wait, where's her garden? This is a master plan. This is a master plan plan. I've ever heard one. So she she has the bouncy and full uh, line of sauces. I know everything about what Khalees is doing right now. So bouncy and full. Bouncy and full. I love so vocative. And they have the farm in California right now. So I know that she is looking for an apprentice because she responded to my comment on Instagram. So I'm feeling wow. like... Wow. Okay, so that's your okay, foot in so the door. I'm there. Already. I'm there. Can't you see it? Like me as an apprentice on Khalees' farm. And yes, also it writing. makes sense. Like it's, it's coming together. No, that That is it. my alternative it. model. I love so, Khalees, if you're listening to this, 
I'm ready. She's ready. She's ready for to to, to nurture the plots and all the things <laughs> that you want to sew. This is amazing. So you're entering into your first harvest harvest yes. season. Do you know yes. what you're going to be planning? We haven't decided yet. Um, I think we're going to divide our plot into threes and kind of choose to grow things that can grow well alongside one another. Um, but the program, uh, this program is actually really fantastic, and there's a series of community gardens all throughout the city of Hampton, which is where the program is. Um. And I think it's going to be really fun. We've met some of the other gardeners, folks of all skill level. Um, we'll get to meet some of the master gardeners coming up. So it feels nice to like have this other thing that I could like learn about and figure out how to be good at. Um, that just works my brain and my body in a different way, you know? Totally. And it sounds like you have great friends who are just yeah. like, let's do this. Get an applause yeah, set. I, let's go. Brian Brian has to. been holding me down since the ninth grade. So shout out to Brian. Oh, shout out to Brian. <laughs> wow. wow. Well, um, okay. So our last question actually um, suits well the topic of how you are both gardening and writing about love, which is a question about balance mm -hmm. and how you create balance. And something that I noticed from working with you, not only on the magazine side, but from hitting you up for this podcast, is that you have an auto reply on your email that tells the sender that you only check your email twice a day at 9 a.m. and at 4 p.m., which we I were been, marveling I have at been this. wanting to ask you about this since I first got the bounce yeah, yeah. back. So I'm curious. So yeah, just tell us about that. Like, how did you decide to set that up, and how's that going for you? So okay, again, I'm gonna give another shout out because I love shouting out people who are smarter than me who do things that I can just say, "Oh, this is smart." So <laughs> my friends Camila Janan Rashid and Kimberly Drew at one time had out of offices on, and I remember the first time I saw theirs, and I was like, "Oh wow, that's really like bold," and then I felt like. I could never do that because what if I miss an email? Someone's going to need to get in touch with me. Um, and I actually don't know if they've kept theirs on, but those two people were really the impetus for me setting mine up because it felt like such a great way to say, hey, friend, like I've received your note. <laughs> like I'm looking at it, but like right now, like I can't respond to it. I don't have the bandwidth or I just don't want to. Um, and I felt like for me... In establishing a new routine as a writer who was like unaffiliated to anything anymore I needed to wait to also not be working all the time mm. like there was a moment like about a year and a half when I was traveling throughout different different time zones and I felt like if I didn't have something to notify folks that I would just be getting emails all the time and I would be like doing things all the time and I would never rest or like see the city that I like decided to visit that moment um, so it's actually been really helpful for me as like a reminder to like set a pace, set a routine and not apologize for that. Um, and I, I just like, I'm just gonna leave it up because <laughs> what, what, what's the harm, you know, what's the harm? Um, and so far people have really been like, okay, like I respect that. I thought it was going to get annoying because it bounces back every time I send an email, you know? And I just like, I hope people don't hate me for keeping this up. Um, <laughs> But so far, people haven't hate me, hate, hated me, um, so I think I'm just going to let it rock. Reclaiming your time, yeah, you know, 2020 I mean, and yeah, beyond. It's so true that 
the problem with, with being able to get messages all the time, like I struggle with this too. I just feel like I need to reply to things immediately. Exactly. Because right. that's the exactly. expectation. It's exactly. like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's it. like my like baseline, baseline anxiety. So it is nice also you just manage someone else's expectation. Because mm-hmm. there are, I mean, p- people have such different relationships to like digital correspondence, but there yeah. are people yeah. who literally expect you to reply Instant. as if yeah. it was a text message, you know? So you're I mean, like, I can't. I gotta yeah. go use the bathroom. I gotta go eat. Like, I gotta go to yoga class. Like, I'll come back to this. And if and if things were really that urgent, the people who need to reach you in that way, they already know how to reach you that way. Yeah, very you know? true. So that's so imp- important. Just establishing those boundaries to just mm-hmm. keep the creative work that we're all doing just sustainable mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. important work and people need to read your work and experience what you're doing, your perspective. So thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Chat with us, Jessica Lind. It's been such a pleasure. Where can people find you, learn more about your work? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a website, www.jessicalind.co. Do not add a .com because I don't know who that Jessica Lind is. (laughs) Um, And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Lynn Bias, L-Y-N-N-E underscore Bias, like the basketball player. Amazing. Okay, <laughs> so you heard it. If you're interested in reading her amazing work, please visit all of her social media platforms, website, etc. And yeah, thank you so much for Thanks, taking y'all. part this in this Top Rank podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Yep. I think that's that's it for now. <laughs> uh, we're also on Instagram at uh, Top Rank Podcast. Looking forward to whatever else we have coming up next. So thank, thank you so you. much again, and thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Should I see me and the ranking?